This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. With me in my Zoom studio are Kurt Johnson and James Whitmore. We wish to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation where this show is being broadcast at Radio 3CR and to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation at Radio Skid Row. I'd like to thank Rima Rattan who gave us the idea to look at how tourism causes the climate disruptions which ultimately will make tourism impossible you know, when the airstrips are all melting in the heat and the, so much turbulence in the air, we won't want to be travelling overseas. But before we look at a world with much less travel, let's each tell of our own favourite travel stories. I don't want this program to be all gloom and doom. So, James, could you tell us your favourite traveller's story? Yeah, look, Vivian, I love travel. Um, I can't imagine a world without it so I know it's a luxury but it's just so addictive isn't it um I think it can be really transformative um sometimes and makes you see your home in new ways so I mean last year I had the great fortune of spending two and a half months in Italy um which was just you know an amazing trip of a lifetime sort of thing to do um but something that I really you know I kind of learned while I was in Italy, it's just um, the resilience of people, I guess. You know, Italy is such an old place. I mean, all, all continents have, you know, immense human history, but some of Italy's towns date back to for 2,000 years and have endured things like the plague and war and fascism and bureaucracy and, you know, they're all still there and... Um, I think it's really, you know, kind of hopeful how resilient, you know, societies can be. Okay, Kurt, what about you? You've travelled a lot. What's your favourite story? Thanks, Viv. I, I, I really, res- uh, what James said really resonates with me. So I, I really appreciate the um, being able to, to really dig your, dig your fingers into the, um, the, the, the antiquity and the age of, of being in a really old place. I had a um, a bit more of a, a an experience a, a different experience when I was um, writing writing a book in um, Kazakhstan and I was able to go to there's a Russian enclave there where they the first the first man got sent into to out of space uh, Yuri Gagarin and um, I managed to go and see a see a rocket launch um, from from that site and that was a really amazing experience because I think uh, what would be relevant to this show is you, um, it was at a time in 2015 when uh, again, Russia and uh, the U S were sort of at each other's throats and there was a bit of a, a reboot of the cold war going on, but you went there and the Russia, the rocket that I saw um, taking off was a Soviet era rocket. And, but it still had, um, astronauts from and cosmonauts from from all over the world so there was an american on there and there was a russian and you can really 
really get a sense of what international cooperation can happen um, when we begin to look at our uh, predicament, um, you know, in, in, in a transcendent way. And um, I think that's that we could take a lot from that to um, our current battles with climate change. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And Kurt's book is, what's the name of the book, Kurt? It's a very good travel book. What's it called? Uh, it's called The Red Wake. My story, you know, everybody knows I love going on the trains. I haven't flown for many years and I'm never going to fly again, but then I'm old, so I have to, you know, understand that other people can fly, but I don't need to. And I, my favourite story is on a train in India. So you imagine yourself on a hot day rushing to the station in India. I jumped on a train and I honestly I couldn't tell if it was going to the place I was meant to be going. I couldn't read any of the writing. It was this curly writing called Malaya Lam all written up in this curly script. I couldn't tell anything but there was a picture of a lady on the side of the carriage so I jumped in there and I realized later that it was a, a lady's only carriage and in a minute uh, after I settled down three women in full hijab got on and another one just had a red sari with beautiful jasmine in her hair and they all sat down and they were all laughing and talking and the three took off their hijab coats and hung them up on a hook and got out there knitting and sat down and it was the most marvellous hour of travel I've ever had. These three ones who had the hijab on, they were all teachers and the one of the red sari was the principal of the school and they were going to this country school and the minute they heard that I was an Australian teacher they Oh, they just got into a teacher's staff room type conversation like, oh, what are the parents like in Australia? Are they a pesty sort of group <laughs> like here? Or are, they, are you have some naughty children in the class? And yes, yes. And they all discussed all about how you get on with difficult parents and difficult students. And it was so much fun. And they just wanted to know about me. And I just got such an idea out then because when they got on with their hijab, I had thought, oh, these women are probably very shy, you know, they won't speak to me, they'll be just very quiet people, but they were as noisy as anyone and f as fun to be with. So that really just gave me another p point of view on life and on people, and I would not have got it, got it if I hadn't been on that train in India. So I love travel too. Serendipitous moments, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and who would want to stop people travelling, but still, this generation has got to face the fact that our tourism and the number, the before COVID, tourism was starting to creep up as a major cause of climate change, not just the aviation, but all the allied causes. So, James, tell us about the person you interviewed. Yeah, so I spoke to um, Dr. Aranima Malik from the University of Sydney, and she worked on a 2018 paper that was published in one of the Nature journals. And this was uh, a paper that really calculated for the first time the full impact of the global tourism industry. Before this paper, we did have some estimates of the global carbon emissions of the tourism industry, but this paper really went further. Um, and it found that uh, tourism emissions in 2013 were 4.5 billion tonnes, or about 8% of global emissions. Um, and they also looked at which countries were most responsible and for those and which travellers were most responsible. So that was very interesting. Um, but one of the main things that I took from it is that the huge size of the tourism sector's um, greenhouse gas emissions is really a reflection of the enormous economic 
impact of the tourism industry. About one in 10 people work in tourism in the world. And something that uh, Dr. Malik really pointed out to me is that when we're talking about uh, reducing emissions and the environmental impact of the tourism industry, it needs to be balanced with the economic benefits because a lot of particularly developing nations are highly dependent on tourism. Um, and obviously that has driven, um, you know, some, some nations to the point of crisis um, during this pandemic as tourism has completely collapsed worldwide. So here's James Whitmore talking to Dr. Arunima Malik from Sydney University. So Arunima, in your 2018 study, you found greenhouse gas emissions for tourism were four times higher than earlier estimates. Why is that? So in this study um, that we published in 2018, we used a technique called input-output analysis. And this technique called input-output analysis takes into account uh, not just the direct emissions, but also the indirect emissions in the supply chain. So previous assessments um, had only taken into account selected uh, emissions or or only the direct emissions, if you want to put it that way. Um, Hence, um, their estimates came out to be about 2.5 or 3% of the global uh, CO2 uh, emissions. But in this study, we went beyond that and we looked at emissions indirectly in the supply chain from a life cycle assessment perspective. So not just emissions from burning, let's say, petrol in cars, but also emissions uh, in terms of if you're going to a destination and you are uh, staying in a hotel for two days, um, then emissions uh, embodied in your stay, essentially, were taken into account in this study as well. Hence, our estimates come out to be 8% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. So which country has the biggest carbon footprint when it comes to tourism? So the biggest carbon footprint, um, USA. So that really stands out from the um, results that we produced in this paper. And that's essentially uh, due to domestic travel. Um, we, when we did this assessment, we looked at, um, uh, let's say, a range of results. Um, and, uh, and the results that really stood out in our study were the ones uh, where we looked at island destinations. So when you look at island destinations, um, then on a per capita basis, um, small island destinations, for example, Maldives, um, feature one of the highest uh, destination-based footprints. Um, And Maldives, I I, uh, picked this um, out explicitly because uh, international tourism in Maldives is responsible for about 90% of the emissions on that that island. So... um, in terms of uh, per capita uh, footprints and also small island destinations, uh, of course, international tourism is a prominent um, uh, factor there. In, in terms of net travelers, uh, because we did this study by taking into account a range of countries, we noticed that people from Canada, Netherlands, um, Denmark, um, Norway, for example, um, they exert a much higher carbon footprint uh, in other overseas destinations than in their own country. So um, that's another key finding um, from our paper. Is that because they're choosing to go uh, to destinations that um, have much more carbon-intensive tourism industries? Um, That could be one factor, and also because they're choosing to go uh, more abroad than uh, within um, their domestic uh, premises. So as you're saying, the Maldives have the highest uh, per capita Um, carbon footprint when it comes to tourism. So is that another way of saying that if I were to travel anywhere in the world, the worst place I could go in terms of a carbon footprint footprint would be the Maldives? 
Um, I wouldn't put it that way um, uh, because obviously we know that these island destinations, they very much depend on income from tourism. So uh, if we just look at uh, these emissions, then we're only really looking at um, one side of the entire picture. We, all, we also need to acknowledge the fact that these island destinations, they very much um, depend on international tourists for running their economies, and that is a key source of um, their income. So from a sustainability point of view, um, we need to take into account environmental sustainability, social sustainability, and economic uh, sustainability. Acknowledging that these island destinations depend on international uh, travelers, and also acknowledging that there are environmental impacts associated with people traveling to these destinations. Um, so it's obviously not very equal between rich and poor countries than big or small. So can you tell us about some of the inequalities that we can see from this research? So we looked at um, the spending patterns of high income countries and um, low income uh, countries, as in people from um, high income countries, when they travel, um, they spend a high proportion of money on air travel, uh, shopping and hospitality. And uh, if we have uh, people from low-income um, countries, they spend um, a high proportion of money on, let's say, unprocessed food and road transport. So the spending habits of people from high-income countries and low-income countries, they, they, of course, vary. And that, uh, that, of course, translates to a variation in footprints as well. All right. So which parts of the tourism sector are the biggest emitters? So the biggest uh, emitters are um, transport. Uh, we also have um, shopping and, and food. Uh, so these were the three key contributors um, from our uh, study. And again, that takes into account um, the entire supply chain perspective. Yeah, so it's pretty easy for us to imagine um, when we use transport, fly or drive a car, we can imagine the fuel burning. But can you just explain to, to us... Um, how is it how does shopping um, involve carbon emissions so let's say um, we go um, from we've, we've flight from australia to a country in europe and um, we buy some souvenirs there and those souvenirs they're they're not made um, in the country that you travel to uh, they are instead imported from other destinations so um, it's when when you're traveling to another destination what you also need to take into account um, is the items that you're spending money on on there without picking on certain countries here. But if you're, uh, if you're buying locally sourced uh, items, that includes food and also items that are made um, within in that country, as in souvenirs, um, rather than souvenirs that got imported from other uh, countries and, you, and you're buying them uh, in Europe, um, then, of course, that translates to uh, um, a higher carbon footprint. So it, it all depends on what you're spending uh, money on ha and how um, your habits are. So locally sourced food, of course, is, uh, is much better than um, processed food or food that's imported. And so uh, same goes for souvenirs and other uh, items that you shop for. Right. So what's the easiest bit of the tourism industry to fix to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from? For, um, of course, for this study, we didn't look at um, strategies um, that uh, we can employ for reducing emissions. Uh, but um, some of the mitigation strategies put out by the United Nations uh, World Tourism Organizations, um, Organization uh, include encouraging, let's say, travelers to choose local destinations rather than flying to um, destinations that are far, far away. Um, also, when you're taking flights, uh, it's 
uh, it's always better to take direct flights rather than um, changing flights because a lot of energy is used in uh, takeoff and landing. Um, increased use of road transport uh, and, and less aviation uh, could be one way of reducing emissions. Um, and also if you're going to these destinations and, um, and acknowledging at the same time, and I keep stressing this point that uh, sustainability is not, not just environmental, but also social and economic, um, we need to provide opportunities to um, tourism um, operators for uh, improving their energy and carbon uh, efficiency. And one thing that struck me from your study is that in large part, the size of um, the tourism sector's greenhouse gas emissions reflects the size of the tourism industry's economy. And the, the really the answer to uh, reducing the emissions of the sector is, you know, broad measures to, to decouple economic activity from carbon emissions anyway. So I guess... Um, you know, any any strategy that reduces emissions elsewhere in the economy will also help um, reduce emissions in the tourism sector, won't it? Yeah, that's correct. So if we go for, let's say, low carbon technologies, then in, from a supply chain perspective, um, if we're using more renewable energy, then it'll go a long way in not just reducing the emissions of the electricity sector, but also uh, other sectors of the economy that rely on electricity. That That's... That's one example that really comes to mind here. Yeah. So I want to talk about the pandemic, which has obviously brought tourism to a crashing halt, um, particularly in places like Australia. Do you think this is an opportunity to rethink our approach to travel? Um, yep. So we know that uh, the pandemic has resulted uh, really um, in a fall in, in air travel demand because of travel restrictions or lockdowns in general. Uh, and transport and tourism are one of the worst hit sectors, um, as we recently found out in a study that uh, we published in uh, PLOS One. Um, so this really highlights, um, I guess, the interconnected nature of um, our social, socioeconomic and environmental systems. So of course we know uh, that emissions have gone down because um, of the pandemic, uh, but no one really wanted a pandemic for uh, seeing such a large reduction in emissions. So. We, we do hope that this is um, viewed uh, in, as, an, as an opportunity to redesign our systems um, for ensuring that we are, um, let's say, foolproof for future pandemics and also for um, ensuring uh, that the transport and the tourism industry is able to cope and adapt um, and bounce back um, um, from our, our post-pandemic and bounce back in a way that we don't see uh, emissions going up again. So um, it's it's time for us to really rethink about our systems. Yeah, and as you've mentioned, um, it's really quite unfair for countries that depend so deeply on tourism dollars. And it is, in fact, um, you know, quite a crisis for countries that um, depend so much on travel and tourism at the moment. So the countries that depend... Um, primarily on tourism uh, for running their economies. Um, I guess here we have an opportunity as well for those countries to think of local uh, income streams. So a, a study recently uh, published on Cook Islands um, in the Journal of Cleaner Production uh, a couple of weeks ago 
um, by the ISA group um, at the University of Sydney, uh, where I'm a co-author as well, um, showed that local income streams um, really go a long way in improving jobs, um, economic stimulus, and also reducing emissions. So these local income streams uh, in the form of sustainable businesses, rather than re relying on uh, imported commodities or um, tourism specifically, um, would uh, hopefully allow these island destinations to adapt and be resilient for future challenges. Right, so none of us are traveling much at the moment, but if we can again in the future, what are the sorts of things we should keep in mind as travelers? Um, so as travelers, um, some of the things that we could keep in mind, um, again, um, where, where we are traveling to and how uh, we take, uh, what kind of transport um, we take or the mode of transport. Is it going to be a road transport if you're traveling locally or um, uh, are we going to these various destinations within, uh, if within a week we are going to, let's say, five or six places that involve um, changing lots of flights, then is our travel going to be sustainable or would we just be going from one location to the next? Um, uh, or are we better off uh, taking a direct flight to a destination and then engaging locally uh, with, with, the, with the habitats there or the local e ecosystem there as in um, walking and um, engaging more with nature that way rather than um, choosing car for local travel if you're going to or um, a destination or, or simply air travel. So I guess um, it's, it's, it's always good practice to see where you're traveling to and what kind of mode of transport um, you choose to take and um, whether you spend money on processed food or locally sourced food. Um, so these considerations, um, again, would influence uh, the carbon footprint of travelers. So is it fair to say then that the answer to, um, you know, the environmental impact of tourism and various other problems associated with tourism is not, not to end tourism, but to just do it better? Uh, yep. So we can't, we can't end tourism uh, because, um, again, it, that will impact uh, people's livelihoods who depend on tourism uh, and, and, and tourism as, as an industry and as a sector. Uh, but to, again, to, yeah, to do it better, to ensure that we employ sustainable strategies, keeping people's livelihoods and also for reducing our impacts. Hell, I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower, and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. Now Kurt takes us to the Pacific, where two and a half million people in 14 nations are threatened by our rising emissions, yet they're economically dependent on tourism, which is a big contributor. Um, so, yeah, thanks, thanks Viv, and uh, thanks, James. I interviewed... Uh, Sheldon Chanel, who spoke about just the overwhelming reliance that Pacific Island countries have on the tourism industry. So this is similar to what, what James is discussing before. And obviously, because they're islands, they're 99% they're of, um, of tourism has, has dried up in Fiji, for example, and just what is left over there, what the, the the people that used to work in this industry, what happened there, and but how they have, um, uh, you know, they have these uh, networks um, 
which are based on the village and based on their families that they can rely on. So there's resilience there, but there's also um, obviously one of the biggest threats at the moment um, and one they're working really, really hard to adapt to is climate change and looking at that, the relationship between climate change and um, the tourism dollar and how that's being impacted by uh, the, the, the decline in tourism. The emerging economies in Pacific Island countries have evolved to rely quite heavily on the tourist dollar. In 2019, the pre-COVID industry was worth $4.2 billion. Uh, tourism has an ambivalent relationship with the climate, of course. Tourists that fly to most Pacific Island countries have a much larger carbon footprint than those who call those islands home. Yet tourist dollars to, can do much to help build resilience in these countries, particularly exposed to the climate catastrophe. So what happens when you take this money away? We are speaking with former Fiji Sun Deputy Managing Editor, Business and Senior News Journalist, Sheldon Chanel, about the relationship between COVID, climate change and the Pacific. Hello, Sheldon. How's the, how is the weather in Suva? Hi, Kurt. It's a pleasure to be here. Um... The weather is great, actually. It, it did rain a little bit in the early afternoon, but things have cleared up now. So you wrote an excellent article in May describing how heavily Pacific Island economies rely on tourism, uh, which we will include in the, in the show notes. Can you explain the impact that COVID has had? Yeah, thanks, Kurt. The impact has been devastating on, on most counts. Um, there are reports of tourism businesses closing across the region, so from the smallest ones to some very, very large ones. Uh, in Fiji alone, we've had nearly 300 hotels and resorts that have shut down. This is according to our Tourism and Hotel Association. The major one um, came in last month, the Pullman Bay Resort. So this is a large, uh, a large locally owned establishment in Nandi. Nandi is where our our international airport is situated. It's a, it's a, it's a tourist town, very popular among Australian and New Zealand tourists. So they've closed down and they're facing bankruptcy. Just today, we had three major hotel groups, the Fiji Marriott Resort, the Westin and Sheraton Resorts on Denarau Island. So these are all international chains. They will be terminating uh, more than 900 workers by the end of August. So that was quite significant. This, of course, um, adds to the 115,000 workers that have already lost their jobs. So this number was announced by our Prime Minister last month in a meeting with the ILO and the World Bank. The bulk of, of these workers uh, come from the tourism sector. This is expected to further add to the woes of an already struggling economy. The central bank has said Fiji's economy um, is expected to decline by 21.7%, uh, largely due to um, declines in tourism. So tourism, just as a, this is an overview, tourism um, contributes about uh, $2 billion, about Fiji $2 billion to the, to the national GDP, about 40%, and directly or indirectly employs 150,000 people. The impact has been huge, massive in Fiji, but it's also been significant elsewhere. Of course, this is a region that welcomed more than 2.1 million international visitor arrivals um, in 2019. That number has severely declined, uh, if not, um, you know, um, uh, ground to a halt. Um, the IMF has said that uh, visitor arrivals to Fiji in May uh, declined by 99% compared to the same month uh, in 2019. 
hotels, resorts are already, already closing or have closed down in places like the Cook Islands, Palau, Tahiti, and Vanuatu. So these are also uh, tourism-reliant um, economies. Emerging markets, emerging tourism markets such as Kiribati, um, Solomon Islands, and Tonga are also close to mass arrivals. So I suspect that uh, they have also they're also facing very challenging times at the moment. The impact, of course, in these countries is, is even more acute because so many other industries rely on tourism activity. Uh, for example, Fiji's uh, flagship national airline, Fiji Airways, has, has ground to, to a standstill. National airlines in Kiribati, um, Samoa, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu have also stopped commercial flights. Farmers that supply uh, agricultural produce to, to these hotels don't no longer have a source of income or at least have lost a significant source of income. You have the energy sector, um, you have transport, you have a lot of um, banks that support tourism activity that give out loans and all of these, all of these loans or, or debts have now you know, become bad. So, so it's, a, it's a very much a, a widespread impact. Is any of that visible on the street when you walk around Suva? Is there a change of conditions there? Right, Kurt. In, in, in Suva, so Suva, we, we don't really rely on tourism that much. So if you come to Suva, you might not notice it as much as you would. If you go to Nandi, I was there in, in Nandi last month doing, doing stories on, on COVID's impact. And, uh, you know, I found a ghost town, places that were very popular with tourists or restaurants. You have a very popular place on Denarau Island called Port Denarau. That's empty. The car parks are empty. The restaurants are empty. The port itself uh, no longer has any, any, any foreign yachts that are, that are docked there. And you see a lot of these uh, former tourist workers have, uh, have moved back to the village um, to weather the storm until it passes. And especially in tourism hotspots such as Nandi, which is, which is really a major, major tourist center, not only because we have the, the international airport there, but because these international chains uh, like Marriott have invested heavily in, 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 that, in that part of Fiji. You really see the impact um, when you visit and it's, and it's quite uh, scary to see, um, you know, and it's very uncertain times. Yeah. So I, uh, I get the, the, the sense when I am in, in Fiji that there is, if somebody comes on hard times in Fiji, then there is an ability for them to fall back on a, a community network or family network. Is that providing some stability to people that have, are experiencing hardship? Well, yes. Um, you know, as I said, a lot of a lot of people have moved back to the village network. Some of them haven't uh, been, uh, you know, in that village for many years. They're returning now. They've been welcomed. They're supporting how these uh, societies are structured. They're they're playing their part. Another thing that we've seen is, uh, you know, people are using uh, social media to mm-hmm. to you know distribute help. We've got the we've got a <coughs> quite a popular uh, barter for better page that's that's got about i think roughly 150 uh, 100 to 150000 members uh, where people can uh, you know uh, without any cash exchange products so they they've they've got people exchanging a phone for some groceries they've got people exchanging uh, things like you know uh, tv sets microwaves or just just you know just um, offering to help around the house or the garden in exchange for groceries yeah and things like that yeah, we, we have a lot of NGOs and CSOs, uh, the civil society organizations that have also been mobilized. We have religious groups, um, so um, Hindu, Christian, and Muslim groups um, that have that are providing free lunches for students in school, uh, that are that, that are providing free food for uh, you know people that have lost jobs or, or the homeless. 
Um, and there are a lot of uh, fundraising activities also that are being conducted by these religious church groups um, and also NGOs and CSU. So they are very active now. They're, they're working in some cases with government or even independent of government just to try and, just to, just to try and get help um, out there to people because, um, as you know, the longer this, this crisis goes on, um, uh, um, the higher the chance of you know, things like hunger, things like poverty, things like crime also increasing and that could be very risky uh, to the situation in Fiji. Yeah, I imagine there's also a, a political component to this whenever there is a, a, a serious economic downturn. Yes, there is. And uh, we saw a warning today from the Pacific Islands Forum uh, Secretary General, Dame Meg Taylor. She did say that uh, should the economic hardships continue, the, the chances of civil unrest, at least in some parts of the Pacific, not across the Pacific, but in some countries, the chances of civil unrest, of, of you know, um, the political instability is quite high. And it's not new to the region. We've seen it before in Fiji, in, in the Solomon Islands. Things like this have happened. So a lot of people are on alert. And I think, um, you know, there, there are a lot of, lot of people in Fiji right now that, oh, not just Fiji, but the region right now, that are desperate for help. I guess looking at the Pacific from Australia, we... We know that there's been so much work that's been going on in the Pacific to uh, adapt to climate change um, and so many different projects that are in process to, to, to kind of fight the impact of climate change when it happens yeah. in the future. Has the economic impacts of pulling the, the carpet out from under, under your feet of um, tourism just leaving, has that had any impact on any of those projects or action on climate change? Right, Kurt. So on the one hand, uh, some people might say that the, the decline in tourism is, is good for the climate. A lot of these resorts, especially the bigger ones, and the airline industry, they have quite a large carbon footprint. But in the Pacific, uh, because so many livelihoods are dependent on tourism, I think um, it will be understandable um, that government makes it one of the first industries uh, to revive. So far, we haven't heard any examples of cuts, I think, but uh, there are already some warning signs. For example, in Fiji, our government has, has reduced the environmental and uh, climate adaptation levy from 10% to 5%. So this was an environmental tax that was charged uh, on companies with annual turnovers of more than uh, 1.25 million. And the money from this was used uh, to fund climate change projects, so in, t in regards to mitigation and adaptation, as well as um, uh, the relocation of coastal villages uh, inundated by um, um, seawater. Yeah. There was a strong push from, from the business sector to remove these taxes completely um, because of the situation, but, but government decided to reduce it to 5%, and it only mostly applies to larger businesses now with the annual turnover of um, Fiji and 3 million. So the double the amount previously. Um, there, there are also strong calls from civil society groups uh, and NGOs for governments not to deprioritize efforts to address climate change. And the PIFs, the, the, forum, the, the Pacific Islands Forum Secretary General has also said that climate change is still firmly on the agenda. And, and she's reminded ahead of, of the Forum Economic Ministers meeting, which starts today and ends tomorrow. It's a virtual meeting of, of finance ministers of the region. The Secretary General has reminded them not to lose sight of climate change, which is still a major, major long-term issue in the region. But, you know, because of the economic slowdown, not just in island countries, but also, um, you know, in donor countries like uh, Australia and New Zealand and, and 
other countries as well. I think there are bound to be some cutbacks. And uh, I think it is quite logical um, that climate development funding may face some cuts, at least in the short to medium term. Right. Thank you, Sheldon. And, and finally, um, I'm really interested in the crossover between um, co- the impact that COVID's had and, and food security. One commentator has said that trade and movement restrictions within and between countries has reduced availability and accessibility to healthier foods and increased reliance on unhealthy processed foods. This is, of course, referring to the, to the Pacific. The prices of rice has gone up by 50% in Kiribati, for example. Fiji is yep. traditionally a very fertile country with, with volcanic soils. Have you seen any evidence or do you know of any evidence of COVID impacting Fiji itself? Well, the thing is, Kurt, in, in Fiji, most, most of our food is imported. You know, we have a very large trade deficit in that regard. Because of this, I think Fijians have uh, easy, easy access to imported foods. Uh, Fijians have moved away. From, from their traditional diets and, and consume things like rice and wheat. Um, staples such as taro and, and, and tavioca still do form a substantial part of their diets. But it's generally cheaper to, to buy things like rice and things like white bread. So a lot of people just opt for, for the cheaper and uh, you know more affordable options. In terms of dietary changes in Fiji, I haven't seen any reports of, of you know that, that can maybe uh, back some of these things. But... A lot of people are turning to agriculture and, uh, and you know, fisheries to support themselves yeah. in, in the current situation. And uh, so that might be improving things a little bit. Also, also something that the government announced in, in last month's budget was the reduction of duty on about 1,600 imported foodstuffs. So, so this could really bring the prices of these other, uh, you know, um, non-traditional uh, dietary uh, diets, you know, make it cheaper and uh, I think right now, for most families, it's it's about survival rather than nutrition, and that's okay. the main issue. They will they will buy anything that is affordable. I think at times like this, they will not really worry about the nutritional value. There's also a lot of uh, consumption of processed foods, which may be contributing to Fiji's NCD problem, which is already quite high. We have very high rates of uh, you know diabetes and things like that here. But on the flip side. It's, it's not everything's not you know all negative there's also some positives uh, there might be a decline in the consumption of food items such as fizzy drinks like coke sprite and fanta i think because uh, given the current situation they're seen as a luxury not many people can afford to buy it so again kurt i think you've asked the very important questions and i think we should be asking ourselves these questions and we should be doing more research on these topics uh, to make sure that you know our debates and discussions are, are informed with facts and, and, and data yeah well thank you so much for your time sheldon and i i, I really hope the trans tasman um, corridor will open up to in, include uh new zealand and fiji we're we're lagging a little bit behind uh here in yeah. australia but you, you don't need to wait up for us you guys go go <laughs> um <laughs> yeah but thank you so much for your time sheldon thank you kurt it was my pleasure hi there 3cr listeners this is shane howard the goanna fellow These are strange and tough times and a lot of people are doing it really hard. But they will pass. Be kind to yourself and others. Buy local and like 3CR, support local businesses and local artists. Don't be afraid to reach out for help if you need it and don't hold back giving it if you can. Thanks to 3CR for being their collective voice. You're listening to Radio 3CR and Radio Skid Row. We're talking about the end of tourism 
This is the name of an article by Christopher Beleg in The Guardian. The pandemic has put a big question mark over flying and cruising. Who can forget the Ruby Princess and the quarantine hotels? But COVID-19 has also given many places a break from the relentless tour groups cluttering up the city. Cities like Venice and Barcelona felt overwhelmed. They wanted to revoke tourist apartment licences in favour of locals and students to have a more sustainable city and now they're doing it. They are grappling with unemployment now but they may claw back a livable and more localised way of life long term. The Indonesians also tried to protect their Komodo dragons from tourism and smuggling. They wanted to close the island of Komodo for one year to restore the habitat. But the backlash from hotels and dive companies put paid to all that. And then COVID-19 came to the rescue. The island is now closed for 2020. The habitat is being restored. There's plenty to eat and the dragons are thriving. We heard tonight from Dr. Aruni Mamalik and from Sheldon Chanel how COVID has revealed just how dependent some economies are on tourism. The United Nations estimates that 120 million people will be out of work right now because tourism has dropped by 80%. And we are all becoming highly aware how pandemics are accelerated by planes and ships. But the emissions haven't gone down very noticeably in this short time. Our carbon emissions from past tourism is locked in. So rethinking, relocalising tourism is essential. And just as we've learned to stay home for the common health good, I think we can learn to maybe stay on the ground at least for the common good of those increasingly terrified by climate events. When I was in in Europe, um, I was in Amsterdam and the host I was staying with was a younger woman and she was kind of puzzled why I was there. And I said, oh, you know, I'm Australian and we travel lots. Um, but she said that she earlier she'd had a trip booked to South America, which she cancelled because her friends had shamed her out of it because flying is so terrible now in Europe. That gave me great hope, really. Here are some models. Greta Thunberg famously sailed to America. She also turned up at Davos by train. She shamed the economic leaders who had arrived by private jet and told them, your house is on fire. And then there's one person who's influenced my decision not to fly. That's Professor Kevin Anderson. He works on climate science in the UK and Sweden and he goes back and forth by train. I have made quite a reasonable effort in some areas, so I don't fly anymore. I haven't flown since 2004, which is difficult. I also have, um, not that many of my family are still alive, but I have an uncle who's in Australia who I'd love to go and see. And I haven't seen him since 2004, last time I went out there. And I will never see him again. That's not easy, you know. So he's you know, my, probably my closest blood relative, and I will never see him again. And mm -hmm. that's a challenge. But I think if I go and see him now, um, if I flew, flew to see him, effectively the amount of emissions I'd be putting out would be affecting someone else's family quite significantly. Um, you know, and we know where they'd be, they'd be a poor, a poor family living on the coastal strip of Bangladesh or something like that. The next two speakers are from Flight Free UK. Today we're talking to Roger Tyers on the subject of carbon offsets and green technology. 
Roger is a research doctorate at Southampton University and has written a few articles for us which you can find on our website under the Be Inspired tab, including one called The Truth About Carbon Offsets and another What the Aviation Industry Really Thinks About Climate Change. But he's most famous for sitting on a train for two weeks to get to China to carry out some research, which catapulted him into the category of climate commentators who practice what they preach. The reason for our discussion is that many airlines have ambitious targets to be carbon neutral and have lots of impressive publicity saying how they can achieve this. And it seems to rely on green technology and heavy use of carbon offsetting. There are even claims that passengers can fly carbon neutral if you pay a little extra for an offset. So we want to get to the bottom of what that means and if it's viable. So let's start by asking what is carbon offsetting and how does it claim to work? Well, the, the idea of carbon offsetting is that we can calculate how much carbon is created from that activity, say flying, and then we can extract that same amount of carbon through a different activity. So you might create a ton of carbon from flying from A to B, and then if you pay some extra money on your ticket, the airline will then arrange for a ton of carbon to be taken out of the atmosphere in another way. Classic way is planting some trees. I mean, that's the one that is probably most kind of popular, it's the most photogenic, everybody likes trees and you know, it looks nice on websites and in brochures and all the rest of it. But th there's many other ways of doing it, so carbon offset finance can go towards renewable energy projects, so solar instalments or to uh, wind farms, and, and often in other ways which might not reduce carbon from the atmosphere but might prevent more carbon being put into the atmosphere and this is where things get a bit more complex but for example um, funding to clean cook stoves in the developing world so clean cook stoves use less wood which means that people in developing countries talking about India or sub-Saharan Africa don't have to chop down as many trees just to cook with so if you can provide these clean cook stoves that's a way of avoiding further carbon being released in future. There's also, and probably the last category would be more kind of mechanical ways um, of extracting greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. So taking methane out of landfill sites that's, or other greenhouse gases that are generated from, from landfill waste. Or the really kind of futuristic end of things is direct carbon capture where you literally suck carbon out of the air. But those, those are, tend to be at the very expensive end of carbon offsets. Trees, I love trees, everybody loves trees, but they may not be the answer when it comes, especially with flying, which is such a quick way of creating pollution, and trees are such a slow way of sucking it back in. Also, the problem with trees is, as we've seen, there can be wildfires. Trees can generate carbon when they burn rather than taking it out of the, out of the atmosphere. The, the, I mean, the bushfires of California last year, let alone the ones in Australia, they kind of doubled LA's carbon footprint. So trees are great, but trees are extremely fragile. This is not to say that some offset schemes are not worthwhile. But it's probably best summed up by the Aviation Environment Federation Deputy Director Kate Hewitt. At best, offsets might be able to do some good somewhere in the world, but they won't stop CO2 coming out of the back of the aircraft. If we can't reliably reduce our emissions through offsetting, is technology the answer? We are capable as a species of some quite amazing and sometimes quite rapid 
development, you know, especially in times of, of war, often amazing things come out like ultrasound, ground-to-air radio, the sanitary towel, nuclear power. Lots of these things come out when we have our backs to the wall and when industries are under pressure to come up with something new and radically different. But the problem we have now is that we have cheap, untaxed fuel, which is keeping our aviation industry going. And the incentive to really innovate and create game-changing new technologies isn't there. I do think if we squeeze the industry through, through taxes and other ways to reduce demand, we could see some very quick innovations coming through. Well, our current situation with coronavirus might be the backs-to-the-wall moment that we need in terms of incentivising these changes. With airlines struggling, campaigners are asking governments to attach strict climate conditions to any bailout packages. After considering all of the options in terms of offsetting and green technology, Roger writes, The single best way to reduce your carbon footprint remains the most simple one. Fly less. We know we need to reduce our carbon footprints to avoid climate breakdown. There are lots of things we can do, like eating less meat, using renewable energy, or driving less. But did you know that just one flight could wipe out all those savings? A return flight to LA generates more emissions per passenger than eating meat for a year. But not flying doesn't mean not travelling. There are lots of other options that are much less polluting than aeroplanes. A train journey from London to Barcelona has a tenth of the emissions of flying. And it's much more fun too. And with the whole of Europe on our doorstep, we have so many holiday destinations to choose from. But it's often cheaper to fly. And booking low-carbon travel is not always straightforward. One way we can show we want things to change is to stop taking flights. If lots of us do this together, we make it normal not to fly, and we will show politicians and industry that people are ready for change. More and more people are choosing not to fly for climate reasons. Could you join them? Make the pledge at flightfree.co.uk. Now here is Maya Rosen, who started the flight free movement in Sweden. Well, sometimes people ask me, like, why do you focus on flying when there are so many other things that we should do? And I really think that this issue is so important because not flying is one of the most important things you can do as an individual to reduce your own emissions. But it's also such a good way to get more people engaged in the climate issue. I think it's such a good way to get more people understanding that it really is a climate crisis and we can't keep living the way we do. And when you see that other people not only talk about what we should do, but actually sort of show with their action what needs to be done, it's a good way to get more people involved. And then it's no longer about giving up flying. If you accept, oh, I can't keep flying, you also try to reduce your emissions in all other ways. And that's the thing. There are many things we can do to reduce our emissions, but flying is the big one. And if we accept that, everything else follows more easily. But behaviour change campaigning is really hard because we can feel totally overwhelmed with the scale of the task. And when we feel like we're the only ones who care, it's easy to give up. But for Maya, the opposite has been true. The campaign has given her a sense of purpose and has shown her that she's not alone. 
Well, I used to be really concerned about the climate crisis and it used to be something that worried me, but I was trying not to think about it and I was trying to focus on other things. But it was sort of always a bit there and would make me really worried or sad at times. But now when I feel that I'm actually doing everything in my power to solve this, I find my life so much easier and so much happier. <laughs> I think what made me not be able to relax before was that I was knowing deep inside that I could do more and I didn't. And I think that was kind of stressful. But now when I'm doing everything I can, it's such a relief and it's such a relief to sort of be true to myself. But I also think during this year, I've, I've gotten to know so many other people who feel the same and we're striving for the same goal. So I don't feel lonely anymore. Before I used to feel like I was the only one having these concerns. But now I've met so many inspiring people who are also spending their lives fighting to solve the climate crisis. Well, we found Maya to be one of those inspiring people, and we're grateful to her for being brave and getting this issue out there. When I was in, in Europe, um, I was in Amsterdam, and the host I was staying with was a younger woman, and she was kind of puzzled why I was there. And I said, oh, you know, I'm Australian and we travel lots. Um, but she said that she earlier she'd had a trip booked to South America, which she cancelled because her friends had shamed her out of it because flying is so terrible now in Europe. That gave me great hope, really. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions community show. We've been talking tonight about the end of tourism or rethinking the way we travel. You heard from Sheldon Chanel in Fiji, from Dr. Arunima Malik in Sydney, and thank you to James Whitmore and Kurt Johnson for bringing those interviews to us. My interviews were from Flight Free UK and I'd like you as your um, action this week to maybe join up with Flight Free. If you're staying at home anyway for 2020 you can pledge that you won't fly. It probably won't hurt you at all. But there's lots more action on climateforchange.org.au we would like to know your feedback. We never get much of an idea what people think about this and on the subject of flying less or changing the way you do tourism or travel, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at radioteam at bze.org.au. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is a tribute uh, to Kavisha Masella, who's one of the many brave Australian musicians who are surviving, I hope, the COVID pandemic shutdown of all theatres and concert halls. This is one of my favourite songs by here. It's about a young girl who comes out, wants to go out to Australia, and she calls her mother, Mama, Mama, give me 100 lira. And the mother combs her hair with a silver comb, but she says, I'll never give you 100 lira to Australia. I'll never see you again. And the brothers call from the window, let her go. And then the mother gives her the hundred lira and she goes out. And when the boat is in the middle of the high seas, it sinks and they all drown. And the mother cries at the end, fishermen who fish the seas with your nets, bring me my love up from the depths of the sea. And I think it reminds us of all the travellers, all the trips that have been made, especially to Australia and America, the migration that happened, huge numbers of people came here, often on a one-way trip, never to return. This is uh, Kavisha Marcella. <laughs>
Fina la rosa bianca, una figlia da marido. Thank you.